Price, and you're listening to The Numbers Station. Today I'm joined by Corey Dancero, who is a doctoral student in modern thought and literature at Stanford University. The topic of our conversation is mind control in a very broad sense. The conversation is to some degree about the CIA's mind control program, codenamed MKUltra, which if I'm not mistaken, started in the late 40s, uh, but it continued into the 1960s, and there was a huge scandal uh, when details about it started uh, coming out um, in the 1970s, I believe, with the church committee. We never actually discuss MKUltra directly, but that's in the background, as Corey especially speaks uh, in very philosophical terms about what it means or what it looks like to control someone's mind or to be in control of your own mind, what is control, and so on. One of the most infamous elements of the MKUltra program was its use of LSD as a sort of potential facilitator of programming or reprogramming, breaking down and putting back together a person's mind or consciousness. Corey was actually on the show once before, um, about a year ago, in an episode that's titled The Abduction Theme in Ancient Greek Religion. So uh, some of you might remember him from that episode. It's always a pleasure to have him on. I hope he'll be on again in the near future, and I hope you all enjoy listening to um, his deep thoughts about control and the human mind. Um, so you proposed that we would talk about mind control, I believe. Yeah, and the esoteric deep uh, state. Um, um, well, let's just start by talking about what control is. Yeah. And at some point, we can question what at what point mind control is different from just control in general? Like controlling bodies, for instance. So, in Jean-Baptiste Vico's theory of the origins of society or the origins of nations, um, the story starts with a state of nature, kind of, where giants are roaming about promiscuously in the forests. Uh, and the history of nations starts when a lightning bolt shocks these giants and stuns them and inspires them to control themselves, to inhibit the motion of their limbs, to stop wandering about promiscuously, the word Vico uses is conatus. They, this lightning bolt instills a desire to hold their bodies still uh, in awe and respect of what they imagine as a sky god named Maximus, who will punish them if they don't get under control. Um, so the term he uses is conatus. And if you Google that, uh, a more common usage or the basic meaning of it now is just inclination to persist 
persist in a form, in an identity, to repeat one's identity and to have it persist. Um, it reminds me of the Skinner's, Skinner idea of reinforcement, mm-hmm. uh, re- repeating a sequence that constitutes an identity across time. Um, so for Vico, it starts with this moment of shock or stunning, being stunned uh, that gets these giants into shape um, and brings them uh, out of the randomness that defined their motions before and brings them into control. And once they do that, they can become kind of patriarchs who control others and uh, create the first asylums, as he puts it. Um, You have to be controlled yourself if you want to be a controller. Um, So immediately there's a question of what, or a question, I guess, of infinite regress. Who controls the controller? What's the higher form of control? Uh, What's the higher circuit of control? Uh, If I have to be already under control, if I want to be a controller, then there's always going to be a question of a regress of a hierarchy of controls uh, and the question of what is at the top of the hierarchy of controls is an interesting one. Um, Yeah, what is control? Well, and I'm also curious when we talk when you're talking about control, what is what is being controlled? What is the object of control? What is the thing that is being controlled? Right. Well, in this case, we're talking about people. We're talking about uh, we're talking about members of the human species who are kind of still natural beings in the sense that they are like billiard balls being pushed this way and that by the laws of nature. They don't have self-control yet. There isn't an autogenous circuit of control installed in those beings yet. Um, so the unit of what is controlled, yeah, it's, it's got to be... Uh, a creature that's thought of as a natural being, like it... Uh, maybe as an object that's not quite fully human or not quite an agent yet. Um, not quite an agent until it's brought under the command of an agent uh, or a controlling intelligence of some kind. Mm. And I guess there's an idea that that which is under control is somewhat less than human like if you're controlled you're like maybe closer to being an animal than a human and that's allegorized in the in the odyssey story of circe the 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 men turn into pigs when they come under the control of circe um so on the idea of how one gets oneself under control and becomes someone able to control others. Uh, I'm interested in, I guess you'd have to think of it as an initiatory sequence 
that brings you into a control. Um, I've been thinking about the idea of how priests were trained uh, at oracle or pla places where there are oracles uh, in the ancient world, like the Delphic Oracle. Pliny the Elder talks about how the Delphic Oracle is located at a poisonous event, mm -hmm. a toxic event, and anybody who goes in there will get sick and die. Mm -hmm. uh, plants will die, animals will die, almost anything will die in there, except the priests of the mother god or something like that. Yeah. But they have to train themselves to keep their cool and to keep their head while they're in this toxic event. Um, so there's a, pro a process of inhabiting a situation that should kill you, that eventually strengthens you, uh, and what was a poison, uh, you learn to stomach it and to remain in control while you're exposed to the toxin. And that is what qualifies you to become a priest who could you know, lead others into that toxic uh, place, uh, and you would be qualified, you'd have some sort of competence. Uh, and in the early history of 20th century psychedelia, I see that theme strongly in Ernst Jünger's writings. He had very much had this almost militaristic idea of what psychedelics could be used for to kind of initiate uh, a kind of elite group of people who could handle that uh, intense... Uh, wild state of mind and that that would somehow train them uh, to be even like warrior types. Uh, and who was this? Was he a scientist or a philosopher or? Philosopher. Uh... He was, he was a, a writer. He wrote, uh, he, he was most famous first of all for a war memoir called Storm of Steel in which he recounts a kind of psychedelic experience of wartime as this overwhelming sensory um, over overload um, where, yeah, I won't go too into that, but he was first a war writer and then he kind of transitioned into being more interested in drugs at some point and psychedelics as something that could replicate that situation of danger and intensity that war provided. Uh, and that the drug could be used to initiate people into like a warrior status in the same way that war itself had done. And did he uh, take these ideas into practice or did they stay mostly uh, philosophical? The idea of being a warrior trained by psychedelics? Well, specifically that, that training idea. individuals. Did he have like a school or was this like just something he was writing about? He was much more of an independent, uh, autonomous writer. He w he's not the sort of guy who would have founded an institute, Yeah, but was quite an influential man of letters and a well-connected guy uh, in, I guess, the intelligentsia or something like that. Mm. So all this is under my first my first idea that to be a controller you have to somehow train yourself to be in control first, uh, and the question of the process of being qualified to control others 
Um, and the idea of initiation as exposure to a danger yeah. that by inhabiting it, you become mm, especially in control. Mm. Uh, I wonder, the idea of control, or let's say the idea of mind control is, uh, people think of it, the, the term inherently sounds like kind of paranoid or like it's already invoking a conspiracy theory. The idea that you are mind controlled uh, seems sinister, like someone's, you know, pulling your strings uh-huh. uh, like a puppeteer. But I want to ask, like, what would be the contrast case to mind control? In a sense, mind control is a very quotidian and uninteresting thing. Like, our minds are in control. Um, and if they weren't in control, what would that look like? Uh, would it just look like, I mean, one answer to that is if our minds weren't in control, we would just be enslaved to bodily instincts or something like that. Mm. We would be natural beings like billiard billiard balls (laughs) ruled by the laws of nature as opposed to being ruled by intelligence. Well, I think you're being a little uh, generous if you think that uh, a majority of people are ruled by are ruled by intelligence, but uh, um, but I, I just want to hear where you're going to go with it. Yeah. Um, I just want to suggest that it's kind of hard to think of what an absence of mind control would look like, and maybe I just want to deflate the paranoid. Yeah, apparent connotation of that concept of mind control. Um, the control isn't always malevolent, you know. Yeah. Um, I ha- okay, so I had a few notes here about speculations about what higher circuits of control are. So one one thing I thought of is in the novels of Philip K. Dick, the narrator feels that he is receiving a command from some sort of alien intelligence that's trying to invade this world and provide helpful information. So he comes under the control of that arcane intelligence. Sometimes it comes through like a beam of light from a satellite. Um, But it's an intelligence system that controls him. He calls it the vast active living intelligence system. I want, I, uh, I'll have to uh, come back to it later, but I think you'd be interested in hearing about how uh, the Prophet Muhammad described what it was like to receive uh, uh, the the verses of the Quran, like how, how revelation came to him. All I remember off the top of my nice. head is that he said that sometimes it was like the sound of a ringing of a bell, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, or that sometimes, you know, like he could like have this sense this feeling that something was coming you know um before it uh possessed him but i think you'd be really interested in hearing his uh descriptions of the different ways it sounds a lot like what you're saying here with uh, uh this description from phil k dick okay so please continue well to stay in this kind of genre of counterculture psychedelic cultural history i also think of timothy leary who sometimes would invoke um, kind of playfully he would invoke intelligence agencies that were 
right. conducting that were conducting the events of the counterculture, he would say, um, some, sometimes it seems like it's in a playful mode. He's, he's using the term intelligence agent as a metaphor for just kind of mysterious forces that move things along. But then at other times, it seems very literal. He'll say, literally, I give the CIA credit for initiating the consciousness movement or something like that. So there's this interesting interplay. Sometimes it seems like a playful myth- mythic description. Sometimes it seems like an actual description of the CIA. Like, like, hi- like history, historically, yeah. Uh, Terrence McKenna also played with that kind of language. There's an infamous controversial soundbite where he says, you know, the reason, the reason he wasn't arrested in the 70s is because, quote, they contacted me and said that I could work for their PR department if they wanted. Uh, and so some people have taken that to mean, right. oh, he's just he's invoking the mushrooms, the DMT entities who contacted him with this, uh, with this set of commands uh, and this mission. Uh, and some people are like, no, he's literally an agent. He's literally a CIA agent. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember his brother uh, addressed this. There's a YouTube video where uh, um, Dennis Dennis McKenna talks about this, and he does not uh, support that interpretation that that his brother worked for the CIA. But did you did you want to say anything about like the CIA's role? Why that's more than just a uh, um, a conspiracy theory or a wild idea that they might have like literally historically have started the movement? Or do you want to come back to it or? How are you feeling inspired? Well, sure. I mean, all I have is little hints there. And I don't know. I just, I would just point to like Al Hubbard. But, you know, let's let's leave a hiatus there and come back to it. Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to mention in terms, so we, I've mentioned Philip K. Dick's idea that he's receiving intelligent instructions from a satellite. I mentioned Leary invoking intelligence agencies operating events. I also, searching through my recent notes about this, there was a Forbes article that was about how the Iranian government claims that the United States is under the control of tall white aliens. Oh. Did you see that article? I mean, no, no, I would love to. <laughs> uh, yeah, they said, it says, since 1945, the U.S. government uh, has been the subject of a sort of coup by tall white aliens. Oh. Whatever, whatever that means. Maybe some kind of a- Aryan beings. Maybe some kind of Aryan beings. And it's interesting how it coincides. 1945 is an interesting start date yeah. for that. Mm. But anyway, whatever that means, there's that kind of mythical idea uh, that maybe even has political ramifications. Mm. And the final thing that I had listed here is the idea of agent intellect in Aristotle. And I'm just going to drop that term and like say that that's a hyperlink for another discussion. The idea of agent, agent intellect and the history of the idea of intelligence is quite interesting. Like Plotinus, uh, in his kind of theological, metaphysical system, intelligence, 
is a word that is very powerful. Uh, it's yeah. one of uh, one of the layers of the emanation of the one is intelegiri, um, and we could even dissect the word there and talk about what legiri means. But I'll leave that for another discussion. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. uh, another thing I wanted to just throw out there, another approach to this is the idea is the history of how psychiatric or the history of how psychiatry approached the task of controlling insane patients yeah. or bringing manic delusional people under control. Uh, and I've been reading Foucault and the way he breaks it down is that in the history of psychiatry, there's two basic approaches. The first approach is you literally tackle the guy and wrestle him to the ground and tie him up. Yeah. That's the first, most simple way to control. Uh, but there's a more subtle approach that leads into more interesting, um, into a more interesting history of psychiatry, and that's the approach of building a space in which the manic delusional person can act out their fantasy and from their perspective they're just doing exactly what they want they're living their they're living their hallucination Foucault describes it as he describes the asylum as a labyrinth that's continuous with the delirium or the delusion of the patient mm -hmm. so the image of a labyrinth is interesting for the question of control uh, because it is a space in which the fantasy can be acted out. The mad the madman's fantasy can be acted out. And yet, at the same time, it's uh, repressed and in control, and it's not going to harm anyone. I also like the concept of sleep paralysis, yeah. because when we're, when we're asleep, our mind is free to invent uh, and to act out desire without uh, as many inhibitions but the reason we're allowed to do that during sleep is because there's this mechanism called sleep paralysis which ensures beforehand that none of our fantasies will be translated into actions bodily actions so i'm interested in that as a metaphor that that mechanism of sleep paralysis that frees you up to be insane or to hallucinate uh precisely by preventing you from acting on it. Another figure for this is, I already mentioned Circe, I think. And how yeah, when the pigs. The people could become pigs. Uh, that theme more generally, the idea of a sorceress's garden where formerly autonomous humans come under the control of a spell, often through drugs, <clears throat> Uh, and I think there's a big return of that motif in 20th century culture, especially in the paranoid 70s and 80s when everyone was concerned about mind control. And a good example is the Jonestown cult, which in a way is a, is a modern Circe's garden, right down to the fact that apparently a lot of opiates were used to keep people satisfied while they were living there. Sure. Uh, there's a New York Times, the New York Times coverage of that in 1978 really 
dilated on that and emphasized that it was a that pharmaceuticals were crucial to the operation of the commune and that if people were getting anxious and wanting to leave, they would go into treatment mm-hmm. and after a few weeks they would have no desire to leave. Um, and that's an interesting, it's an interesting thing because I mean, opium It's a kind of freedom, uh, the intoxication, the, the, the trip provided by pharmaceuticals is a kind of escape, a kind of freedom. Um, mm. And in a way, those patients who want to leave Jonestown, they want to escape, they want to exit, but they're kept there because the doctor's can use drugs to provide them an alternate exit, a kind of internal exit mm-hmm. to this state of intoxication where they forget that they wanted to leave it all. That itself is a kind of exit from their dissatisfaction, but it's a kind of, it's a way that keeps them there at the same time, keeps them uh, in the commune. So it's a type of control. <laughs> um, And finally, I wanted to bring up an image from Julian Jaynes's The Origins of Consciousness in in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. He has a a section in there called The Hallucinogenic King, which suggests that in bicameral societies... What's a bicameral society? That's... It's a word for the kind of prelapsarian... mode of human consciousness that maybe ended around the time that Homer wrote the Odyssey when um, the idea of an autonomous consciousness was developed. I haven't read the book that deeply, but in in, in this one section, he suggests that um, there was a former mode of control and social structure that's centered around hallucinations that would be transmitted to a community through a sort of a sort of I guess hallucinogenic intercom system where the king would somehow have his voice in everyone's ear and everyone would be sharing a common um, set of commanding images um, I mean, one way that it's concretely described is that the king's house would have a fire burning in it and there would be smoke billowing up over the king's house and that people all around in the community could see that smoke. Um, can, you say would, that, can you say that last part again? That broke up a little bit. Okay. There would be smoke billowing up from a fire in the king's house at the center of town or at the top of the hill and the smoke... People could see the smoke all around. All the citizens of the village could see the smoke. And messages and images would be seen in the billowing smoke. So a kind of shared hallucination or a consensus would form about what the smoke was conveying. Um, But in general, the idea is some some form of governance and control via a shared hallucination 
Yeah. So I just listed, I just threw out all the things that struck me as interesting images or provocative images for control uh, and mind control. And I guess the way to connect it to the state or the idea of a deep state would be to, to ask what I don't, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I was really looking forward to seeing where you were going with that <laughs> well I think it's been implicit in all the examples I've given that there's always a potential for governance in these or there's always an idea of governance and that mm-hmm. it's a way that commands are transmitted in a way that people are kind of brought under the spell of an idea or an image and feel that they have a mission. I mean, Philip K. Dick is a great example of that. He, he thinks he's the privileged recipient of information that mm-hmm. instructs him about how to how to destroy the false forms of control that are currently governing, governing American society and replace it with some deeper or higher intelligence. So. Do you have, do you have anything to say about animals and humans uh, about what um, is the difference between, you know, like a, I guess what you would say a natural being, because I'm not entirely persuaded about this idea. Uh, um, first of all, that humans are in control in, in uh, uh, any real way beyond the imagination, except in certain uh, uh, very specific and uh, rare uh, situations. Um, but right. also, but also that um, uh, I see a lot of control happening, like in. Uh, primate society for example there is a uh i mean not just primates like in a lot of uh uh non-human animal societies there's uh um you know a sort of cent- I, I wouldn't call it a centralized government but like uh, there's uh you know perhaps an alpha male or sometimes an alpha female a matriarchy or a patriarchy and there's hierarchies and and there is a sort of system of control there mm-hmm. which might resemble our own system of control more than we would want to recognize sometimes yeah well even when we're talking about humans who are ostensibly the beings with intellect who have the potential to control nature or whatever there's it's always possible to view humans in two aspects both as intelligent beings and as natural animals at the same time so there's a there's a way you can just flip back and forth between the two perspectives. And whenever I'm acting as a free agent, I'm also simultaneously acting as a natural, causally legislated being. That's something Kant talks about when he talks about what freedom could possibly mean, because there's no exemptions from the laws of nature. If if you look at the world, um, if you look at nature, there's no... There's no breaks in the causal continuity uh, of nature, and humans are not exempt from that. 
and yet humans have agency at the same time. So for Kant, it's just a matter of flipping back and forth between two perspectives uh, and understanding that I am always simultaneously a natural being and a free being or a controlled being and a potentially controlling being. I might also even argue that like, rather than, um, uh, you know, the way you were proposing it was that uh, in order to control uh, your environment or others, you have to first be in control of yourself. But I think, Mm -hmm. I think it might be the other way around that um, uh, the more someone is, feels a need to control the environment, and uh, people around them, it's it's often, I mean, if it's being motivated by internal reasons, it's because they control themselves by controlling the environment, that especially one's emotions, that uh, um, things have to be a certain way in order for uh, um, your emotions to be a certain way. And so, mm-hmm. so you control yourself by controlling. Oh, interesting. Right, yeah. Good so it point. kind of indicates a lack of, a lack of self-control. Right. You need to exert control to prove to yourself that you're in control or something. Yeah. Or or just like to have a certain emotional outcome, um, which is something that you like potentially could do directly. But at the same time, like as I've experimented on myself with this sort of thing and with, you know, psychotherapy or, or uh, cognitive behavioral um, uh, techniques that... Um, in the end, when I really do come ar- come back around to it, it's like, I don't actually want to try and control myself internally directly. What I actually want is for the environment to be arranged in a way that makes me happy. You know, I don't really want internal control. I want uh, uh, mm-hmm. external comfort or whatever. So maybe you could tell us what you think, uh, like we don't have to connect it to the beginning part, but just like, what is this idea of the esoteric deep, deep state? I think we all have at least like some concept of what the, the like uh, exoteric deep state yeah. might be. Yeah. Well, I think I would have to be a member of the esoteric deep state to be an authority on the question of whether that exists and how it operates. Mm-hmm. So, I feel like not in a particularly good position to talk about it because I mean, you have to be initiated in order to know how it really works, don't you? I don't know. Like, how does the phrase even make sense to you, though? If you don't have, if you haven't already had some degree of initiation, like even just like the concept itself, right? I mean, what is the esoteric part? Maybe we can start there. Well, we'll see if this leads us in a productive direction, but there's a myth of, in in contemporary American political debates, there's a fringe of people who think that Trump is a messiah sent in to destroy the deep state, that this is called the QAnon conspiracy theory. Yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. And... The, the way that QAnon's information is conveyed to the public is quite interesting. It's like there'll be these strange bursts of, of information posted on message boards that have a, a lot of kind of it'll be a, it'll be a complex burst of 
of uh, of information that's highly kind of uh, scrambled. It looks it looks scrambled. It looks like there's a lot of code words in there. It's not mm-hmm. the meaning is not immediately clear. Uh, and yet people look at it and they see all sorts of messages in it and they kind of decrypt it in various ways. And there's communities of interpreters of the messages that QAnon supposedly emits. Um, and so there's an exegesis process. There's an initial burst of information that seems scrambled or uh, encrypted. And then there's an exegetical community that construes messages in it. And it, it's, sort of, it's sort of a contemporary version of what I described where there's the smoke rising above the house of the king and then people look at it and see different things in it and take them to be messages from the ruler. Yeah. Um, and the QAnon community, I think, sees Trump in that exact way as this kind of, or they see they see Q, I guess they see Q as the one who's emitting these, these descriptions of what's Trump, what Trump is doing. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I believe that at all. It's just kind of an image or an allegory of this idea of a deep state that a lot of people seem to have. I mean, I think that the idea of the deep state is largely associated with these kind of fringy internet communities um, who, in even saying that there is a deep state almost immediately identifies you as like a right wing person who thinks that Trump is going in to bust the deep state. Yeah. Well, so I don't know. I don't know if I believe in the idea of the deep state. It's it's just an operative idea that has a real effect um, and is an actual part of political discourse right now. Yeah. Um. I, I don't have any proof of this. This is just my own theory and suspicion. But um, one possibility, uh, you know, that this, this this community you're speaking of, I think that another way of, of referring to uh, this deep state or esoteric deep state would be uh, in the terms of a shadow government. Right. Right. And my... It's a double government, right? Well, I was I was using shadow specifically uh, because I think that at least a portion of the people, if not a majority of the people who are uh, att- attached to that terminology, are, it's sort of a dog whistle for fundamentalist Christianity, uh, where the shadow government, that the shadow leader is Satan, and, right, and right. Uh, uh, his government is all the demons who uh, work for him, who are both um, um, supernatural beings and humans, and other I don't know what other kinds of beings would be involved in that. Yeah, but I do think that there is. I mean, there's such a strong uh, correlation between the far right and fundamentalist Christianity that uh, uh, it would be shocking if that wasn't. Um, an element of the conspiracy theory that um, uh, well and it came up you sent me a video recently about um, you know these uh, ideas about elites uh, running pedophilia um, yeah and um, child trafficking and 
sacrificing the babies and drinking their blood and all this. Um, gosh, why did I bring that up? Um, because in that video, the, the gentleman who's speaking actually refers to, uh, Satanism and, um, the, these, uh, uh, satanic cults, you know, this being part of an, of a, uh, uh, organized ring of, of Satanists who, uh, I think, you know, are probably also cognitively, um, um, connected with the, that, uh, uh, that idea of the shadow government and the, in the yeah. esoteric deep state. Totally. Mm. So when you refer to, uh, uh, um, Trump is a, is a, a sort of messianic figure in that uh -huh. in that uh, um, imaginative world. I think that, that that's a good choice of words. You know? Oh, cool! Yeah, because the Messiah is supposedly the one who intervenes in the shadow government of Satan. Yeah, I guess and defeats the uh, uh, Antichrist, mm. who's probably Hillary Clinton. I guess in <laughs> if we're <laughs> you exactly. know looking at Q and the, and the far right. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I wrote a paper in which I depicted Mark Zuckerberg as Satan. Yeah. And precisely the Satan depicted in Dante's Inferno, who's kind of a mediocre bureaucratic yeah. presence who's just ushering the souls through like a, like a machine. Yeah. Uh, the banality of evil, like uh, um, uh, uh, Hannah Arendt. Uh -huh. um, that that was her impression of, uh, of of Nazis when she was at the uh, um, Eichmann trial was that uh, y you know you were expecting these um, uh, cartoonish villains to be taking the stand you know uh, but uh, she was astonished at how just like boring and uh, how like what stupid <laughs> stupid bureaucrats all the Nazis were and so she right. you know, came up with that term to describe it of just like. Uh, the banality of evil is just like it's just being this like you know mindless bureaucratic thing is how right. it happens is it's not through you know a passion for evil but just mediocrity that makes right. it happen. Maybe, maybe that's the true that's the true deep state is yeah. just the uh, inertia of the logistics of the accrued system well and I can also throw out there uh, that when I first heard of, um, uh, you know, your references to uh, the esoteric deep state, uh, one of the first places I would have gone would have been um, the Victorian, I guess, uh, uh, secret societies with their ideas of the secret chiefs, you know, the uh, the hidden masters, like uh, right. Blavatsky and, uh, right. uh, and that whole crew, the... Uh, theosophists and uh their uh secret chiefs yeah right yeah the the adepts mm -hmm. um, well and they also were pretty uh i think so, there were some people uh, within that that movement that were pretty explicit about like these are people who are currently incarnated in human bodies like they're they don't just live out there on the astral plane it's not just like we're channeling spirits like they're actual like we're, we're communicating telepathically with uh uh an esoteric deep state that's actually physically incarnated in human bodies somewhere on the planet. Yeah. Well, are, are Blavatsky and those, are the, are those people representatives of the deep state? Are they agents of the deep state or are they the ones 
who are the messiahs coming in to bust the deep state those those hidden masters do we think of them as people secretly operating mm, the forget that okay 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 but uh um I could throw out there also that uh, um, I'm not the first person to speculate that Blavatsky could have actually been working for uh, some intelligence uh, uh, organization, right. that uh, she she traveled very, very extensively around the world in a time where that was very rare, and um, she had uh, aristocratic connections, you know, like to those kinds of political circles in Russia, where that, that was kind of her... Um, uh, family background was uh, uh not implausible that um that she could have been m- m- not just like a representative of an esoteric deep state but just like a representative of some actual um professional intelligence organization right yeah and there's a lot of speculation about crowley also sure or maybe more than speculation uh yeah journalists and... starting to write books about it right it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, and I don't quite know what to make of it. Yeah, it seems pretty. It seems pretty rigorous, like from a scholarly perspective. But the stuff it says is so kind of jarring and seemingly kooky that you know stuff claim, claims such as uh, Alistair Crowley was a United States. He was sent to the United States on behalf of a Rosicrucian order operated by Rudolf Steiner mm-hmm. and that Rudolf Steiner communicated with Crowley using a Tesla's uh, electric tower in upstate New York, that sort of thing. Like maybe. Yeah, maybe there were, there were like I, in the book that uh, we're talking about, um, Secret Agent 666. Yes. There were, right at the very beginning, most of the book is just pure speculation, um, and some of it is very compelling speculation, but there were a few small uh, tidbits of information, a little bit, uh, pieces of uh, um, uh, information he found in uh, that he was able to obtain from MI6, mm-hmm. I think is the... Um, foreign intelligence but um he did find some files and some information and references to file numbers that were more than just um speculation that Mm -hmm. that uh uh, you know he had he had some little pieces that were more than just like um an idea that crowley might have had something to do with with those Mm -hmm. organizations like he actually had some proof of something although it's just extremely uh inconclusive at the moment you know you tell me don't you know some professor who's an intelligence scholar who is interested in voodoo is there something to say there not not a professor um it is uh i think uh a well-known fact that haitian voodoo and the uh the government of Haiti is at least in the time period that uh we're talking about in the 1980s was i think um c- almost completely uh not identical but uh 
there, there was no separation between the uh, Haitian voodoo community and the government. Like the government was, wow. the government was uh, part of those um, esoteric communities. And um, wow. uh, yeah, yeah, and so it's, it's it's not it's not um, controversial either. This is something that's uh, I think pretty well known that. Um, you know, like that the, the the government on Earth was seen as reflecting a sort of um, astral plane or uh, a esoteric government, a spiritual government that it sort of o overlapped with it. It reminds me of the idea of the king's two bodies. That, oh. that book about medieval political theology. No, I don't know anything about the this. Was, uh, I, all I can do is make reference to the book title, but the idea is that the king has two aspects one of them is this spiritual ideal eternal rulership um and then there's kind of a bodily enactment of that that's the real government on earth and it, you know this is another version of the idea of a double government there's a spiritual ruler rulership and then there's the people who enact it in the world yeah. mm, the double government a shadow, and I mean, the thing you mentioned earlier—the idea that there's a shadow government—that's also in, in along these lines. Mm. But I've heard the phrase "double government" heard uh, used to like describe just the basic system of how in England there's the royal family, yeah, that has one form of authority, and then there's you know Parliament, yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, maybe we could find a bunch of different versions of that, of, of double governments. And the voodoo one is an interesting case. I think it's a super is interesting it, case, and, yeah. Is it so different than the English case? Uh, are those voodoo priest communities um, so different than the, you know, the kind of mythic status of the English royal family? And uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'd have to research it, but yeah, I'm not sure either. Side by side, yeah. But the uh, the Haitian voodoo is a really interesting point of intersection, um, where those two worlds come together of politics and um, esoteric esotericism, um, spirituality, the spirit world. Um, there's also the famous mm -hmm. instance of how John Dee was so influential in Elizabeth's... Uh, oh, yeah. And I don't understand that very well, but, you know, I've heard that he used his show, the show stone, to, it was actually used to, like, conduct naval uh, expeditions and stuff, this, this oracular divination stone. I mean, I don't know what that means, but... Well, he was also connected and by connected I mean I, I I'm not exactly sure what their relationship was but uh, um, I know that there was some sort of actual political relationship between him and Francis Wal Walsingham who is uh, widely acknowledged as kind of the initiator of the entire uh, Western intelligence tradition. He was uh, the first oh. person to really kind of sort of systematize uh, a, a, I guess 
a proto-British intelligence organization that continued pretty much, uh, um, you know, up to the present day in, uh, you know, a long process of evolution. But, but so John Dee was like, uh, uh, not only, um, well remembered for his, uh, you know, more eccentric magical practices, but I think he was also very involved, not only in politics, but also in what you would call intelligence activities. Mm-hmm. of the time period yeah I'm thinking now that this whole idea that there's like a magical cobble of secret yeah. intelligence agents that are influencing things that could just be there's a, a way to look at it where that's just a kind of mystified uh, ideological image of what these guys are doing and that what they're really doing is it's just power it's just yeah just like frats it's you know because frats are sort of secret societies that still rule the world maybe it's just these communities of elite guys that like to cast this magical spell around themselves so that people think some some sort of mystical thing is going on but it's just kind of a way to to mystify the masses or something uh and that it could be disenchanted and you know given a, a marxian analysis or something like that yeah i i express something similar uh, along these lines to Yitzi recently, I mean recently as in like within the last six months or something, I wish I, I, I don't really have time to dig through my messages and find it, but he had a really good response that was really like uh, short and to the point about like just because that's true that there is a uh, you know uh, core of political um, individuals using the uh, uh, religious or esoteric system in that kind of cynical way uh, as a one tool in the whole uh, world control toolkit. Yeah, Um, to mystify what they're doing. Yeah, just because they're using it that way doesn't mean that the whole system, that's all there is to it, you know, that... uh, um, they could just be um, misusing something that uh, uh, for convenience that is uh, still, you know, wider and um, right. deeper than they understand. Yeah, I like that. I like that rebuttal or that yeah. response. <laughs> um, yeah, nice. <laughs> that was from, that was from Yitzi because uh, I was having a moment of uh, uh, cynicism about ancient Judaism. Hmm. Speaking of Judaism and mind control, another yeah. image that came to mind earlier. Uh, again, it's something I've heard about mostly through hearsay and word of mouth, but the idea of a golem mm-hmm. as the creation of a rabbi. You know, a rabbi takes this this lump of matter, mm-hmm. assembles it in the right way, and then activates it by putting a letter on the forehead, right? Mm-hmm. Um so that as an example of the question of what it is that gets controlled, it's it's a heap of matter before the rabbi infuses the word into it. So in that case, the rabbi is the, the free, uh, intelligent one, and every everyone else, all the golems, are just uh, kind of 
controlled matter. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it works on a couple levels, too, because there's uh, the story of how God created man, you know, in more or less the same way as... uh, uh, um, uh, through like just creating existence in the first place through language and um, in in Jewish mysticism there's this super elaborate uh, um, uh, I guess you know area of study of gematria and uh, uh, the the mysticism of the alphabet itself and how oh. the, uh, you know the universe was created out of the specific letters of the Hebrew alphabet um so but i'm just saying that like in that level of that uh story you know all humans are to some degree golems you know the and god is the uh the rabbi right i like that one too i like i like that (laughs) in the theological case where god is the controller yeah it's not so paranoid and it's not so much of a bad thing to be mind controlled in that case. It's actually yeah. a pleasure. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be under the control in that case. And lucky because, like, <laughs> well, you know, the, 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 hopefully, you know, he's got everybody's best interests and he's not going to hurt us. <laughs> right. Unlike what we would do with those kinds of powers. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Well, then who do we what authorizes the rabbis to act on behalf of the divine intelligence? How do we uh, vet our priests so that we trust that they're acting on behalf of another intelligence rather than just acting on their whims? Yeah. Or very, very short term uh, uh, pressures of necessity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The story is uh, about the golem also. Um, just the details that I remember are about creating a cow on Shabbos. And um, so there's, uh, you know, uh, uh, more more to that story, you know, with the, uh, the cow having all these associations with, uh, there's the golden, the story of the golden calf. Um, the the association that comes like really more clearly to my mind is about um there's a a a, a surah a chapter in the quran called the cow that's about the uh i think it's about the story of the golden calf but the like cow symbolism like is is pretty ubiquitous in uh judaism and and uh islam so so there's a lot more to that story if you want to go deeper um Especially anything that's coming um, out of the uh, like rabbinic period, I, I, I'm just like my mind is blown at how intricate and subtle those uh, um, uh, rabbit holes, you know, how deep they go. <laughs> I've never encountered any literature like it, but at the same time, it's so massive that you, if you try and just pick up like one of the books and start with page one, you're going to get nothing from it. Uh-huh. Except like you're going to hate life. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fun. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's plenty of rules about cows, the like laws about 
I don't know who they belong to. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it's a, it's a common example of, like, how boring the Talmud study can be, not how deep at that point. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so... Um, Without uh, mind control, the world would be a lot more freaky than it is now. A lot more freaky? It would be a lot more disorienting and trippy and, and scary and bad. Well, when you we were talking... for the amount of mind control that we have... <laughs> When you were talking about uh, opium and psychedelics and drugs and insanity and psychiatry, like one of the things that occurred to me was how many people are terrified of psychiatrists. Um, And I think like probably the most widespread fear is uh, that someone's going to find out that they're crazy. You know, this is like the, there's this intense anxiety that like they actually are insane and they're oh. trying to hide the fact from from the world. And apparently, you know, like almost everybody has that feeling, except yeah. for it seems like a few people on the fringes who are like, oh, yeah, I'm fully embracing this and yeah. not trying to hide it. <laughs> well, it could be argued that everyone on some level wants to be crazy or uh, that's the deepest unconscious fantasy Yeah, is to be the sublime divine narcissist whose mind is whose mind legislates and uh, whose fantasies are all real yeah where was I going with that uh and madmen also aren't responsible they get taken yeah, care. I was going to reference, I was going to, in the Phaedrus, Plato gives a great defense of this. He's like, you know, you know, it's better to be mad, right? Like, it's, it's, it's better to be manic or, or, or mantic. He actually puns on the, on the similarity between right. man, mania and, and the mantic, which means like prophetic. Yeah. Everyone, it's an ideal state. It's a more optimal state. And we have to ignore that in life for the most part. But ideally, we would all be insane. And he get in, there's another part where he talks about the, the cicadas who, uh, when they discovered the muses, they just sang and sang and sang and never ate again and just died in this state of rapturous worship. Uh, and that that's, in some ways, what we all would like to do or we'd all like to be that, you know, rat who gets to just press the pleasure button over and over until, until we die. die. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess there's, I don't know, that's a interesting image to bring to bear on an interpretation of uh, recent cultural history. Because we live in a world where it's become more normalized to exist in a kind of altered state of consciousness all the time like the legality of cannabis for instance the fact that anybody can be high all day and it's okay like it's more mainstream to the existence that could sort of dream state or supposedly a lot of america is existing in this opium reverie all the time uh well and also how um uh, standard it has become for uh, the suburban suburban housewives to be on some kind of uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for a psychoactive uh-huh. uh, medication uh-huh. you know that like if you're not doing illegal drugs the majority of people are going to be doing legal ones yeah 
Um, so, yeah, I think that in a way that's a redemption of a very old idea that it's better, it's better to be in an altered state in a in a dream brought about by communion with a plant, or to be in Circe's garden. And it seems like a lot of people make the choice to be subscribed to like Circean uh-huh. uh-huh. uh, industrial systems. Uh, so that's an interesting image for me is that maybe we are all choosing and voting in a way to return to a state of Circe's garden and we're voting and giving our assent and saying, actually, that's what we prefer. Yeah. Uh, and maybe it's right or wrong, but as a matter of fact, people decide that. Um, <clears throat> opium is the religion of the masses. Right? Marx says religion is the opiate of the masses. Yeah. But really, it's opium is the religion of the masses. Uh, and I guess opium isn't necessarily a drug that we would say induces a manic state or a delusional state. Um, it's more uh, of a calming and tranquilizing thing. Yeah, like Soma. Like, like Soma. Soma right. Like in 1984, not in the Hindu scriptures. Uh, you mean in Brave New World? Brave New World, in, in Brave New World, yeah. It's Soma combines the qualities of tranquilization and hallucination. Um, you know, and in some ways I think people are trying to make ketamine that something that both assuages all your concerns, makes you relax, and it's like a trip at the same time. Uh, I guess I see us kind of collectively groping towards an ideal drug of the sort that Huxley envisioned that can entertain us and keep us in a palliative state. And I guess in Brave New World, it's a it's it's a tranquilizer, it's a psychedelic, and it's also a stimulant somehow at the same time. <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, like, what what is scarier, the idea that there's this uh, esoteric deep state in control, or that nobody's in control? Right. Because control is also protection. Yeah, it could be relevant to bring up cybernetics, which is sometimes called the science of control. Yeah. Like how Wiener thought of it at first. The meta, a meta science of control. Yeah. And an interdisciplinary attempt to figure out what control is in itself such that all these different disciplines have control mechanisms in different ways. Uh, and for Wiener, for Norbert Wiener, it was a matter of abstract mathematics, something that you had to study very soberly and seriously in a very abstract, you know, symbolic, uh, formal way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the cybernetics movement more generally, the science of control, there were people who thought, okay, we're going to develop social, sociological applications for these control principles. Um, and Wiener was really freaked out by that. He was like, Gregory Bateson, uh, Mar- Margaret Mead, these people, they're like visionary, it's a reckless visionary 
project to try to apply the mathematics, the formal science of control to people. Um, because you just have to, you have to do a lot of homework before you can responsibly apply it that, in that way. Uh, and I guess when you read Bateson, you can see kind of an attempt to respond and to assuage the fears of Wiener. Cause I think Wiener is worried that it's going to be like a brave new world scenario where cyberneticians are just control controlling everyone in a bad sense. Yeah. But you see, you see Bateson writing things like the best way to be in control or to make a system that is homeostatic, uh, is to not try to control too much. Like he gives a metaphor of trying to back up a vehicle that has, uh, like, uh, cars attached to it. Like, like if you're pulling a trailer, uh, if you back up the trailer, if you turn one way, the trailer will turn the other way. Mm -hmm. And he compares social cybernetics to that sort of thing where you have a bunch of trailers attached to a car and you're trying to back up. And if you try to move things in one way, they'll go the other way. Uh, and that the cybernetician can't bring a manipulative mindset to the project of uh, controlling society or uh, helping society become more stable or homeostatic. Uh, but I guess I'll just say that, that within the cybernetics, there was this debate about to what extent scientists should try to control the world uh, and a fear and a fear that we would end up in a brave new world yeah which I haven't read by the way you have Actually, not you can know uh, aren't there movie versions I'm not sure I'm thinking 1984. Yeah, I've read Island more than that. I guess it's kind of similar. I don't know. It's more of a utopia. Oh. But it's the same principles, you know? It's people who are happy and who live in a very controlled society. And there's still a perspective from which they're all mind-controlled. But at that point, I think Huxley is more favorably disposed towards that that outcome for society, or he sees an optimistic version of that. I'm also interested in B.F. Skinner's uh, utopian writings, mm -hmm. uh, Walden too, and there was a, a book that he wrote alongside it called Beyond Freedom, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, and he's really trying to theorize what would an optimal society look like? What would be a, a society that would reinforce itself? Uh, and be stable. And it's like we have to give up the idea that we're free. Yeah. Like that's the annoying human remnant that's clinging and preventing us from ushering in the new age. The concept of freedom. Yeah. Well, when you were uh, describing the train car to you and the way that uh, you try, you want to try and move it one way, or you move one way and it moves the other way, it reminded yeah. me of what we started talking about a little bit right in the very beginning with. Uh, um, why LSD was introduced into the United States in the first place. Like it was intended to be some kind of a uh, mind controlled drug that was going to make it uh, easier to control um, 
I guess, uh, uh, targets. And uh, it had the exact opposite effect. Like there's a, was it Jay Stevens has this beautiful image in his book where he describes like one day, you know, it was like, I don't know if it was necessarily leave it to beaver, but it was like this very 50s neat uh, uh, um, uh, American culture with the boys in their, you know, sweaters and the girls in their poodle skirts. And then like, it seemed like, overnight the same kids were just like running naked and screaming down the negro streets at dawn you know like <laughs> that was what lsd like it's yeah. just that irony of uh uh it, how far to the opposite extreme it actually ended up taking people well the hardcore conspiracy theory answer to that is that those new forms of self-expression and cultural expression were a way to control people. I guess the idea would be, um, see, how do I get into this? You quoted Allen Ginsberg, and that made me think of how Allen Ginsberg was an early uh, test subject. Oh, yeah. In, the experiments and Gregory Bateson was the one who proposed that Allen Ginsberg come and do an LSD session in Palo Alto. Um, what Gregory Bateson wanted was to induce a mass change in consciousness where people would no longer see the mind or the self as internal to their bodies. They would, uh, Cognition would cease to be brain and subject centered. Mm -hmm. uh, there would be a new basic way of being in the world that was more ecstatic. You would no longer think of you listening to music. You would you would see the, the hearing of the music as an event that is neither subjective nor objective. Uh, that sort of transformed relation to the world. And Bateson wanted this to happen for a reason, which is that he wanted... Uh, society to reform itself uh to have the more of this ecological awareness which he thought would allow us to shut down you know terminal industrial escalation processes uh so in a way it was a form of control making people all ecstatic and flower children all of a sudden uh they were expressing themselves differently and being more psychedelic uh, but that's not necessarily opposed to an agenda of controlling people to achieve some outcome. Eight, zero, eight, four, one, nine.